Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I get started, because I think it's so darn important, I want to start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show and to remind and continue to encourage you to send any of your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at raincanada.com. That is CEO at reincanada.com. And if you're inclined, I have a couple of very simple asks, which is only to say, I'd really appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, your family, people you know, people you don't know, pets, fish, whatever that might be. We want to get it out there and continue to create momentum and continue the momentum that we've got with the show. Please rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire page, which is a perfect opportunity to comment on guests, to rate the show, like it, share it from there, etc. So, Thanks again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is sincerely appreciated and we will continue to put it to good use. Okay, let's get this show started, shall we? I'm incredibly excited to have a RAIN member on the show to share their story. And today I'm joined by a long-term RAIN member, a gentleman by the name of Jay Gabrani. And I want to take just a minute to introduce Jay. He was born and raised in Toronto and has a strong entrepreneurial flair, which was really fanned back in 1987 when he went on a trip to India where he saw firsthand the business that his grandfather had built. And along the way and during that visit, his grandfather said to him, the only way to be truly free is to own your own business. And that statement had a very profound effect on Jay. Upon his return home, he said to his parents, I'll be working for myself by the time I'm 25 years old. His parents urged Jay to continue his education and he actually went on to university and acquired a degree as a chartered accountant from the University of Waterloo and he worked in big four accounting firms. He left the accounting world the day before his 25th birthday as planned and that really set the stage for his entrepreneurial career. Ever since, Jay's had failures and successes as many of us as business owners know And it was after his first child was born in 2005 that Jay jumped into the world of real estate investing. Based on his experience as an entrepreneur, Jay was pretty well equipped, pretty confident to make the transition into real estate investing. 
Even though he experienced a lot of challenges along the way, he built a multiple seven-figure real estate portfolio. Having that portfolio helped Jay resiliently deal with a heartbreaking personal tragedy in 2014. That experience led Jay to reevaluate the purpose of his life while taking a multi-year sabbatical. Today, Jay is making an impact raising his three children, coaching entrepreneurs to use real estate to secure their family's financial future. He really lives financial freedom by design the rain way. An amazing story. Jay has been on our stage before. We are blessed to have him there. And without any further delay, let's get talking to our guest. Jay Gabrani, welcome to the show. It's taken us a while to get you here. So uh, finally, we uh, made our calendars work and our schedules line up. Welcome. Yes, true. Happy to be here with you, Patrick. Happy to be here. Now, to get our listeners engaged in who Jay Gabrani is, why don't you first off give us a little bit of an uh, what do you do? What is you know what's your thirty second, sixty second, one hundred twenty second, whatever it might be for you elevator pitch when somebody says Jay, what the heck do you do? No problem. Well, basically, uh, if you asked me this question, let's say even six months ago to a year ago, I would say not much of anything. I was kind of just taking it easy, recovering, and I was on a multi year sabbatical. But now that you're asking me the question, I've realized that uh, where I'm going to impact the world and how I'm going to help people is through coaching them through real estate investing. So I like to help entrepreneurs uh, invest in real estate and help them overcome their blind spots. And that is what I love to spend my time on now. And I'm sure as our as we go through our conversation, uh, I'll kind of show you where how we got to that multi-year sabbatical and such. So it's, it's a little different than probably most of your guests who had like a career or something that they've been doing, but uh, I'm actually starting pretty fresh and pretty clean. Well, take me back a little bit. Now you've been a RAIN member, you were a RAIN member for a number of years, you took a break, you came back, but how long overall, when did you start investing in real estate? Investing in real estate, uh, definitely interest was spurred on by the birth of my first child. He was born in August in 2005, and first property investment was made uh, about 18, 16 to 18 months later in early 2007. And how long have you been, uh, when did you join Rain the first time? It was about three months after my son was born, so it was December of 2005 is when I first joined Rain, uh, the Toronto chapter. You make an interesting comment that when your son was born, real estate showed up for you as an interest. Yes. But what drove that, you know, given, okay, so your son was born and Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden I have an interest in real estate. What, what led up to the interest in real estate given your firstborn? It was pretty simple. When I held him, I knew that my life had changed. And basically then at that point, up until that point, there was not much interest in real estate investing, uh, or any sort of investing, actually. I was a business guy. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. But when I held him, then I asked myself the question, kind of, how am I going to take care of you know, this child? And I'm, I was pretty certain that we were going to be having more children, which we ultimately did. So then the interest level for how do I take care, how do I secure my family's financial future? And that started a whole journey of reading. 
and learning. And we're talking about mid 2000, you know, 2005, 2006. Internet was still uh, really strong, but in terms of a lot of the specialized knowledge, it still wasn't online yet. So I was still into books. I remember reading about 150 books and business success autobiographies. So that all drove me to um, the book, uh, Real Estate Investing in Canada. And that was the spur on. When I read that book, then I was like, okay, out of all of these choices, these asset classes, I'm going to choose real estate to secure my family's financial future. So it was all driven by his birth, leading to a big burst of education, education leading to some action. Now, when we go back a little bit and keep, I want to keep going back a little bit further with you, Jay. Sure. You know, you said you were previously business. What were you doing? What was your business background leading up to that? Yes. Well, business background, pretty varied, but uh, leading up to that, um, I went to school, born and raised Toronto, Canada, and lived here my whole life. Went to university uh, for chartered accounting. But before I went to university, I'd always kind of told my parents that I'm not going to be working for anyone after 25, but they wanted me to get an education. So I went, I got the education as an accountant, uh, disliked pretty well every minute of it. And the day before my 25th birthday is when I actually handed in my notice to a big four accounting firm. I was working at Price Waterhouse at the time. And then it started my journey in uh, entrepreneurship. So first big business was a franchised restaurant cafe uh, in Burlington, Ontario. And I had that a long time. I had that like 13 years. And um, ever since then, the, the cafe, I've done a mobile marketing agency. And I've had several other what we'll call starts and stops, things where I was checking out business models and testing things. But in terms of overall business experience, the restaurant cafe was a big one and a long one. That that thing was pretty good. It did like seven figures a year, had like 30, 40 employees. That's where I really cut my teeth in business. And then the mobile marketing agency was more, I was teaching business owners how to get more business from their customers' phones. So business experience-wise, I've done some different business models, but uh, real estate investing is ultimately the one that uh, kind of landed me where I am today. Now, you came away... Uh, as an accountant, were you a CA? What what was your designation back in those days? Yes, uh, designated as a chartered accountant. Wow. University of Waterloo, you get the degree. Then you go do your articling time. I was always at big four firms, you know, Deloitte & Touche, Pricewaterhouse. But, you know, as you look backwards now, that was in the mid-90s. Early to mid-90s is when I went to school and then started working. When I did that whole phase, that now that I look back at it, have a little bit of maturity in life, that was because my parents wanted me to do. It. Oh, sure, they course. wanted be you know they wanted to be able to say that oh look at our son he's a professional he's this that, but at the end of the day that was never something I was going to be passionate about, and yes yeah, so that designation yeah I went to school for it I still use those skills you know like analyzing financial statements etc, but haven't worked in that field and probably 25 years now yeah. almost so well i think it's a, you know it's less about you know i think there's a couple parts to these conversations that i always find fascinating on anybody's journey to where they are today 
yes. in where we're speaking. You know, n- number one, getting a designation as a CA is a big deal. That is, I mean, any degree, uh, any designation as that at that level is is a big deal. But for me, and especially because of my need for accounting, but dislike for it, I just <laughs> drives me crazy. It's so dry. That's it's one of my. I don't know, one of my pet thieves. So my eyes gloss over every time I talk to my accountant. But having said yes. all that, I have a, a strong appreciation for it. I'm, I'm great at reading financials, all of those kinds of things. But the designation as a CA is a real statement of, to me, of character. You know, number one, you got to be bright to get it. And secondly, <laughs> it's hard work. Your testing is thorough. And so I just want to say that along the line. So, you know, I know that you look at it and goes for my parents and that's all, but that's all part of the training as well. I think, you know, it's, you learned through that time discipline. That's a statement of character. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that that point in your life, hating it the way you did or disliking it as much as you did and still getting through it, persevering to get that education, whether you did it for yourself or your parents, it's really a statement of character and uh, what we face when we face adversity, in this case, the adversity of having to get an education that you weren't really keen on. You know, totally, it's totally. Big... But you know what? I I am so happy that they did push me to go to university. Yeah. Because as a byproduct of that, uh, pretty well all of the best friends that I have in my life are from that time. So whereas the education may not have, um, I I might not have used it. Some of like the relationships that I created and formed are lifelong. Yep. So yeah. totally grateful for going to university, but. I uh, I might have had the same friends if I was doing something different, but it really doesn't matter. I agree with you that it is a rigorous education. The final exam is like four four days, four hours a day, but uh, certainly got through that and yeah, uh, happy happy I did it. Definitely no regrets about that. Now it sounds like your were your parents entrepreneurial? Were were is your mother or your father entrepreneurial, or were they go to work kind of folks? They were pure go-to-work kind of folks. Like uh, the calendars kind of match up. They got married in March of 1971. I showed up about nine months and two weeks later in December of 1971. And they immigrated here from India. So my dad actually was educated as an accountant back in India. But when he came to Canada, they did not recognize that. So literally they had this young kid my dad's education was not recognized. He had to reschool himself in Canada. And I remember his first job, he, him telling me was as a security guard for like $3.50 an hour. Right. So there was no entrepreneurial thing in my parents at all. My mom worked in government uh, pretty well her whole career, different ministries in the public service. Uh, but my first entrepreneurial exposure uh, or role model was my dad's dad. It was... Uh, he was back in India, and he had built a successful business. And when I was 16, we took a family trip there, and that was my first exposure to business. My first 16 years of life, I just looked at my parents. They were the role models, and I always thought, okay, I guess that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be working. But when I did go to India and was able to sit with my grandfather, I was just, when I say enthralled by it all, uh, absolutely loved the whole fact of that he got to go to work when he wanted to, uh, but he worked hard and he built a, a, a nice business, which supported, you got to understand my dad is the oldest of uh, seven kids. So it was a big family. And every now, even now, all of his three brothers, they're all working in different branches of that business. Wow. That was my first business exposure. Wow. And then when I came back to Canada, I told my parents, 
that's where that thing of I'll never work for anyone after 25 came from. Because my grandfather kind of, the one message I remember from that whole trip was he did tell me, if you ever want to be free, you got to do your own business. So that's something that I knew uh, that I was going to get into. Didn't know quite what, didn't know when, but I, or, sorry, I knew before 25. Right. And that's exactly what happens. It's interesting, the journey that people go on, entrepreneurs that I talk to time and time again, in the moment, you really don't know. You, you think to yourself, gosh, why am I doing this? I hate this, or this doesn't make sense. And it's always only in reflection that we realize that our journey got us to where we are, and it's the perfect place to be. And also, what I heard in that, you know, as we talked about this, is how many times I've heard the story of kids going to university and doing something that their parents want them to do. And mm-hmm. gosh, it's such a such a tough world. You know, parents want the best for their kids, their best intentions. And, you know, the stat is actually, this is a rabbit hole, but, you know, the stat is incredibly high, the number of kids that go to university and come out of university and never use their degree <laughs> because they didn't go to university because that's what they want to do. They go to they went to university because that's what their parents wanted them to do. And, uh, you know, for listeners, if you're a parent, <laughs> be, be, be aware that, you know, if you're going to spend the money on the education for your kids, make sure it's what they want to do, not what you want them to do. So I think it's just a, an interesting fact. And it's like 85% uh, of people attending university is a ridiculously high number. Anyways, once again, rabbit hole sidebar, but let's, Mm -hmm. let's get back to you. So you've, you got a background, your, your actual, your grandfather was a business owner. You, your dad and your mom were, they had the classic jobs. did their things, did well. Were they pretty supportive of the things that you were doing as you were going along? How was that? You know, you, you obviously, I don't want to say obviously, you know, you weren't, a member of the lucky sperm club, you weren't, you know, part of the silver spoon and, and, you know, your parents worked hard. Were they, how was the relationship, I guess, with you and your parents? Was it pretty amicable all the time? Or are you just a normal kid that way? Sure. Yeah. Uh, You know, when I was a young, young kid, pretty normal. I didn't create trouble. I actually liked school, you know, like playing sports. So I was not a troublemaker at all. Uh, but when, and when I went to university and got my chartered accounting designation and all that stuff, of course, my mom was beaming with pride. My dad was happy, but you have to kind of imagine the day that I told them that I was leaving my job at Price Waterhouse, which of course was a nice big name firm. Uh, whatever I was, I was like 24 years old making in the high forties back in like 1995, 96, and my mom thought, yeah, this is it. He's all set up. He's going to have a, he has his designation, career, etc." You can imagine when the day before my 25th birthday came and I told her that, yeah, I'm not going to be doing this. So let's just say that the relationship was frayed uh, for a little while. My dad, much more supportive, even though he was very uncertain about what I was doing. Uh, he, he was much more like, he'll listen. He couldn't provide me a lot of advice because he just wasn't a business guy. So to him, that's where it kind of came from. In accounting, obviously, I followed in his footsteps. He could help me if there was a question about accounting. But then in business, yeah, not so much. So, uh, And ever since then, yeah, my mother, uh, let's say it took us some years to get over that whole thing, because she just couldn't believe that I would, she thought I was throwing everything away. And I was like, mom, you don't get it. I have to, I can't have a boss. 
Like, it's just not me. It's not my thing. And I have to be able to go and do my own thing. And whatever happens, happens. I make mistakes. I do well. I do poorly. It's all on me. And as she, again, working in the government, having emigrated here from India uh, by herself, basically, my dad followed her like a few months later. So she came here all by herself. To her, I was throwing away the golden goose. So for people out there who are like, they want to they wanna make that choice, at the end of the day, it's your life. And I always use this thing called the rocking chair test, right? Like if I'm like 85, 90 years old, I'm sitting in my rocking chair and I'm looking back at my life, what is it that I'm happiest about? What is it that I would regret the most? And if I didn't do that, then I'm almost certain that that would have been my biggest regret. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So I had to, I had to make the switch, even though it was super tough, super tough. You know, I love those stories because interesting for me, when I observe and listen in on that, I'm imagining your mother immigrating (laughs) to Canada on her own. Like that's a big move. I mean, big, you know, I don't know what her parents were saying in the background. Were they saying, where are you going? What are you crazy? You're giving up the security of being at home or whatever that that case may be. But anyways, Mm -hmm. it's funny. So there's, it comes to you, you have a genetic predisposition for, (laughs) for being a a, a bit of an adventurer. So that's kind of cool. Yes. Yes, certainly. And she ultimately, you know, she did get married and she brought her two brothers, two sisters and mother over. Her father passed away a long time before that. So even though um, I give her a little bit of a hard time, yeah, she made some big steps in life that uh, that you wouldn't believe so much if you knew my mother. Because even to this day, she's super conservative <laughs> and, you know, she's very risk averse. And there's a lot of uncertainty about things when it comes to whatever she sees in the world, economics, etc. So you wouldn't know it. But, yeah, she took those steps and she made the moves to come here. So, again, very grateful for, yeah. for that. We live in a really good country. Yeah. And I... Uh, you know, I, I do recognize that. So, so funny. Kudos you know, to mom. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Moms there. Yeah. I'm risk adverse. Okay. Well, I'll just move to another country all by myself. Yeah. yeah that's, that's cute. Um, so totally. tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, your journey into business because you bought a restaurant or you opened a franchise and that is correct. So you bought the franchise, uh, restaurant franchise, and you had that for 13 years. I mean, there's nothing that beats real life experience in terms of cutting your teeth on, you know, in business, then getting in and doing it, managing people. Oh my gosh, HR, all the things that go with it, managing cash flow. Now mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that. What was the, what was the attraction to that restaurant? Was it about business or were you a food guy? And how did that all kind of show up for you and occur? Yes. Good question. So I was not a food guy. I had never worked in a restaurant in my life. I was just so into the fact of wanting to be my own boss. But when I left kind of the accounting world, I had signed this franchise agreement, even though it took like 18 months to ultimately build the store and get into it. I had signed the agreement before I left my job at Pricewaterhouse. And I found it because at the University of Waterloo, uh, the franchise name, by the way, was called Williams Coffee Pub. The Williams Coffee Pub head office was in Stratford, Ontario, not too far from where I went to school, Waterloo. And it had a lot of locations in Waterloo and Kitchener. It was actually really well known. And when I was at Waterloo, I saw this cafe and I was like, this is pretty cool because it was always busy. It was always crowded. 
And it kind of, it was really new age for that time back in uh, the mid nineties. So I was like, this is really cool. And I remember just visiting one, one day and on my way to the washroom, I saw the, the plaque that had franchise information pamphlets. I was like, yeah, you know what? Let me, let me just take a look at this thing. And that's what happened. I picked up one of those pamphlets. I made a call to their head office and that started a journey of meetings and getting vetted and filling out applications and forms and all of this stuff. So no, there was no food attraction to the food business. I was looking at different types of businesses and you got to understand back then, no internet. So the whole fact of online business and what we see today, the world has changed so massively in that 20 year period that uh, those were the options available. So when I look at what it costs to kind of start a business now and the ability and the tools you have now versus back then, these were the type of models available for someone who just didn't know what to do, but knew that they wanted to be their own boss. So that's, uh, that's how I got into it. And Burlington, Ontario, I lived in Mississauga at the time of my parents. I didn't even know where Burlington was. They, they just phoned me up and said, would you be interested in the location here in Burlington? I was like, okay, where's that? And I drove out about half an hour. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is a good spot. This is something I had been looking for. So uh, yeah, that's, that's how we got into it. And then the actual experience of it, you mentioned it. I tell everyone that if you can make it in the restaurant business, you can pretty well make it in any business because we were serving... Uh, five to seven thousand people a week. Those that's how many people were coming through our doors. And sometimes it was just for a coffee or whatever, mind you. But uh, we were open from seven in the morning till eleven at night, three hundred and sixty-four days a year, closed on Christmas, and that was for thirteen years. So you have to be ready to do business every day, front line, customer facing. And you go through a lot of stuff, and you can handle a lot of things after a while when you go and deal with ups and downs in a business like that. So it was a fantastic training ground for everything else that I've done since, including real estate. But that is certainly where I say I cut my teeth. In that kind of an environment as well, is it's almost like overspeed training. You know, like the the pitcher come, you know, like the guys who are hitting a, you know, they train at hitting a 100 mile an hour fastball or 110 mile an hour fastball so that an 80 mile an hour fastball coming at them is, seems like slow motion. And when you're in that environment, especially when you are the one that's calling the shots and as you're developing your business, you've got so many things coming at you. But at, like to your point, after a while, it just becomes slow motion. It just is mm-hmm. what it is, you know, and you have to go through that. And back to the real estate, as we weave back into the conversation around real estate, so much of that we hear, because I do so much, have so many conversations over the years and so much coaching over the years with real estate investors and business owners, when people are getting started, it is such an overwhelm of information and learning and so much coming at them that we have to realize that that's the learning curve. That is the education. And after a while, it just is so normalized. And yes. now you sold that business, uh, you sold it, were you profitable on, right. the, on the exit? I was profitable on the exit. I was the first two years, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. <laughs> so the two, first two years, uh, it lost some money. But fortunately, I had negotiated a pretty reasonable lease with the landlord. And the first two years, I had got not reduced rent, but I had kind of scheduled or structured my lease so that 
in the first couple of years, he went a little bit lighter per square foot. And then in the last, uh, the eighth, ninth and 10th year, he was able to go a little bit heavier. So I was able to kind of save myself on that. Maybe some of the accounting background did play, play in there. But um, when it really comes to the exit, I exited in 2011. By that time, all three of my kids were born and I had fully decided that I wanted to do much more real estate. And one of the reasons for selling was pretty simple is that I realized after a while that in a franchise, I truly was not in control of my own exit. I actually wanted to exit earlier than 2011. I wanted to exit back in 2007 when I started investing in real estate. But then they put these rules, oh, I have to spend you know, six figures to renovate before I sell and all this stuff. And I was like, oh man, that's, that's not what I'm looking for. So it actually took me about four years longer than I wanted to, uh, to actually exit. Had to renew a lease after the 10 years, had to do some minor renovations, et cetera, before they let me. And the fact that then that's when I realized I'd never do another franchise again because they controlled my exit. And when I got into it at the age of 25, 26, I didn't know what an exit was. The exit was like the sign above the door saying exit. That's what I thought exit was, right? So that's why now franchises, I, I won't do them. Uh, it's because of that lesson. So again, a very valuable lesson that whatever business you're doing, you have to be in control of your exit. And whatever that is, whatever that would be. You know, Jay, that's a perfect segue into the conversation around real estate as well, though, is often, you know, and I've learned this lesson, man, I've learned this lesson the hard way in the world of real estate is that you have to know how you're going to exit and what your plan for exit is and what's your plan A, B, and C. I mean, the obvious Mm -hmm. one is in a fix and flip situation, you know, you buy the property Maybe it takes you three, four, five months to renovate. Something changes in that three, four, five months, perhaps economically. All of a sudden, you can't exit. Well, what's your plan B? What's your plan C? So exit strategy and risk mitigation around exit is such an important lesson to learn. Let's go back to uh, real estate. Now, you were in the world of real estate. You were working your business at the time, investing in real estate. The kids had been born. Now, when you got into real estate, were you looking at it as a full-time, how do I make this an income-producing business, or were you only looking at it as a long-term buy and hold to offset some future thing that you had going on? What was your, what was your view of the world back then? Nice question. Basically, when my son was born, I was like, okay. The question was, how do I secure my family's financial future, and how do millionaires become millionaires? So it was much more longer-term in focus. But then once I joined Rain, attended Acre, started consuming materials, I remember the joint venture binder that I, uh, that I, I had got, I went through that. So I was, I was consuming so much information that I started realizing, oh, wait a second, maybe there is a way to do this full time. I really do enjoy it. I love the, you know, I, I kind of called it back then, I told my joint venture partners, I'm the conductor of the real estate orchestra. And I kind of really liked that. So I did. After starting, I did want to transition into it. If not full-time, then at least to a point where half of my time would be, would be into it. And I started making moves. But when I started, no. When I started, it was like, let's do some long-term stuff. One child's here, probably more coming. Uh, let's secure the future a little bit more. Because up until that point, you know, I got married 2004, child 2005. So again, up until that point, it was more bachelor stuff. 
you know, you're enjoying your stuff. Uh, I went through that phase where every night was a Saturday night kind of partying phase for a long time. So to me, it was like, yeah, let's settle down. Let's take care of the future. It was 25 year uh, outlook when I first started. Because one of the lessons that people learn quite quickly is that real estate, it can be income producing today or it can be income producing in the future. Often there's confusion in that world. How can I make money today? And there's some short-term deals that you can flip, assign, all of the things depending on the marketplace that you're in. I've always looked at real estate. I love businesses. So I love business and I love trying to grow business and, and creating team. And, and to the degree I've had success with the ups and downs is still what fires me up. I love doing that. And, and of course, I love the, the fact that rain, we get to make a difference in people's lives in terms of education, et cetera. But business for me mm -hmm. was always the income producing part of it. And the real estate was always the future uh, income more around what Stephanie and I have plans at some point, should we slow down is maybe today it's going to be legacy actually for my family, but that's a distinction that has to be made. Did you, and it sounds like you got to that fairly quickly. Yes. Again, because of the reading, right? Because the education, not only the real estate books, but the business and success books, I, I just kind of call it, it's, uh, there's railroad tracks and there's two tracks. One is the income track. One is the wealth generating track. So you have to have, you might have different assets, different asset allocations on both tracks, but yeah, that's exactly how I look at it. And, um, within a year or two years, I had realized, yeah, okay, these are two separate tracks. So then real estate, I do realize to totally replace your income, your living expenses, you need to have some pretty good projects or you need to have a lot of projects making a little bit every month. So I do definitely now realize the difference between income replacing yet still like positive cash flow. It's okay for it to be positive cash flow and it not replace your income because you just you're building your equity over time, you're paying down your mortgage, you're getting some appreciation hopefully. So, you know, I, I want people to realize that that make sure your positive cash flow. That's first and foremost on every project you do. Those are the mistakes that I made when I first started. I was jumping in for appreciation, not cash flow, and I got hurt. So it's okay to just have every property positive cash flow and then work your way towards replacing your income. That can be one of the sources. It doesn't have to be doesn't have to be the source. Tell me a little bit about your real estate in terms of the mistakes you made. And I, I, I believe that at one point you had invested in some deals in Edmonton or Calgary. I don't recall which. Was that kind of your yes. first foray in it? That was a that was a bit of an expensive lesson for you, I think. <laughs> I paid a good tuition on that one, yes. So again, the, the 2005 Sunborn joined Rain later in 2005. First acre in Toronto, 2006. But of course, back then, the price of oil was starting to skyrocket. And because of my exposure with Rain, uh, I, I realized that not only in Toronto, you were providing education and uh, you know the the hotel seminars in the in the cities of Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver. I don't know if Vancouver was on at the time, but Edmonton and Calgary for sure. So I was like, well, where should I start investing? And the answer was Edmonton. It was super hot at the time, and things that were selling when I first joined Rain townhouses, et cetera, that were maybe selling for 140-ish thousand. By the time I did jump in in 2007, I bought right at the top of that <laughs> whole cycle. Uh, things were selling for 270, 280. 
And I took on some, uh, some townhouse, uh, townhouse units in North Edmonton, North 156 Ave. And yeah, they were all negative cash flow. Uh, and within six months after buying them, of course, price of oil hit that little, that patch where it went from, I think it was around 135 ish and it plummeted down into like the forties and it was sudden and it was pretty well, like it was six months, but to me it was overnight. It's like, what in the world just happened here? So yeah, made some, uh, jumped in in Edmonton and did switch after about 18 months, 19 months into Oakville, which was my backyard. So I, I wanted to get home field advantage. And, uh, now looking back at it, maybe I wouldn't have started out of province, but it was one of those things where Don talks about, you know, you have to shoot the puck in order to score. Right. So to me, it was, you got to get started. Edmonton was super hot at the time. I was like, well, here's a good way to, to jump in. Let's get started. So I flew out to an Edmonton acre. When we talked about getting out of a comfort zone, I had never been to Alberta, much less Edmonton. Went to, uh, went to Edmonton, attended the Edmonton acre in uh, 2007, if I believe, and drove, rented a car, drove around, met with realtors, property managers, et cetera, trying to develop the team. And uh, yeah, had, had jumped into Edmonton. But then when I was able, when I switched focus to Oakville in 2009, 10, 11, I had already gone through the experience of Edmonton. So yes, it was very expensive lessons in terms of, uh, you know, the property values going down, operating at negative cash flow. Uh, getting high interest second mortgages because that was kind of a tactic we were using back then to pull out equity. The numbers didn't work. And this is for a guy who was educated as a chartered accountant. So, you know, like the numbers, it, it didn't happen. It didn't work and it wasn't good. So yes, you pay a very expensive tuition, which is why, you know, I, I encourage people cut that whole learning curve out, get, get good education up front, get some coaching if you really need it. Because if you can, if you, you don't even know what you don't know, right? Like that, it's a, it's a, a, a line, which I love. People have no clue sometimes what they don't know. And you can really mitigate your risk, reduce your risk. If you get a lot of that stuff done up front and the cost of the tuition that I paid versus maybe if I had a coach or something like that up front, it would have been a different number. The coaching would have cost me a fraction of the actual money. Uh, and by the way, still own a little bit of that. So it's not like all those losses have been realized, but have certainly accrued some losses there. Um, but that switch of focus that I made to Oakville, I haven't calculated all the numbers, but I'm sure I've made those losses back about 15 to 20 times over. So there's a lesson there somewhere that you got to keep going to, even if uh, you mess up. Well, there's two sides of that. I mean, there's always a discussion. There's always a room philosophically to say, we don't learn in our success. We actually learn in our failures. And I know for myself, when I think about the number of times and the number of mistakes, the number of failures I've had over the years in business and in real estate, how much more I'm prepared now when I go into a deal or when I'm looking at a business opportunity because been there, done that. And that just comes with years of experience. And although, you know, for me, coaching, I always had different coaching. I didn't have a how-to coach. That was never kind of my my gig, which is not to say that that's right or wrong. It's just for me, that wasn't really a how-to coach. wasn't about that. I'd bounce ideas off of people and, mm-hmm. and had some mentorship along the way with just close friends. So for you, 
because we have lots of rain members who listen to these podcasts, you're, you're in rain now. What were you doing to leverage the community or leverage rain? I know it sounds like it is a little bit of a plug for rain because I'm always interested to hear from long-term members, people who have gone down the path you did where, you know, I screwed up and then, you know, but I got out, I came back to Oakville from Edmonton, your story around that, how were you leveraging the community at the time or were you? Oh, yes, yes, definitely. So let's just say that when I look back at, again, connecting the dots is much easier looking backwards. So when I look back at a lot of what I have done and the education I received, certainly more than half of it was RAIN-related education. But then when I look back now, or sorry, when I look at today, my network, uh, and I and I parse through, let's say, my 50 closest colleagues almost all of them are from rain. So my network was almost all rain related. I'm a member of a mas- of two masterminds to this day. We've been meeting monthly for almost 10 years, each mastermind. And both of those, both of those um, masterminds were all rain members that we all joined a coaching program, uh, Les Hewitt's Power of Focus, who again, was introduced to us at Rain. It was a Rain meeting where he was uh, talking on the stage, and he started a coaching program in Toronto, a group of thirty. And out of that group of thirty, uh, I'm still super, super close with about nine of them, spread out over two separate masterminds. All of us real estate investors, all of us seven-figure portfolio owners, one, one or two eight-figure uh, portfolio owners. So we hang out and we talk about a lot more than just real estate, but uh, the community is um, is where it's at. Like anything that you don't know, someone in that room knows. Anything that you don't have, someone in that room has. So certainly the only way you're going to really evolve in this thing is getting out and coming to events. And Rain, when I look back again, it, uh, yeah, I owe, I owe a lot to Rain. So I have zero problems talking about this because you'd be silly to not not immerse yourself in the community and come out and meet people because whatever challenges, issues, whatever they're going through, someone has gone through it already. So, you know, it's just silly not to. Like, why would you not? Why would you try and do it all on your own in today's world where there's so much overwhelm, et cetera? Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. So yes, you, you have to come out and uh, and talk and get involved and meet people. That's the best way to kind of cut down your, your learning. Are you an extrovert by nature or you, do you find your, what do you, where do you sit in the introvert extrovert world? I'm one of those guys where, uh, hmm, it's a good question. Let's put it this way. When, you know, I'll take it back into the whole dating thing. Like when you're a bachelor, I was pretty shy when maybe I didn't know the female, but then once, if I got an introduction to the female, like from a mutual friend or something like that, then I was rather comfortable talking. And so the answer is I still prefer to spend a lot of time by myself, like reading and and, and educating and reflecting and journaling. I, I spend a, a healthy amount of time by myself comfortably, happily. Uh, but yes, it's always nice to get out to those rooms and meet people. So I don't know, that that's not an answer to your question, but it's kind of like a half and half. I'm an introvert to start, but an extrovert once I get to know you a little. Yeah, I, there's a term that is an ambivert, 
And that Can't is, you know, cause I'm that way too. I'm happy. Gosh, I could be at home alone all the time. Like, you know, cause yep. Stephanie travels a lot as do I. Sure. So, you know, I can find myself out on my acreage by myself and, uh, you know, I'm just good with that. I could reach out to my neighbors. There's some good friends that live around the corner, yes. but no, I'm good. I'm a good alone. But you know, if one of them phone <laughs> me and go, PF, you want to come over for a beer? I go, yeah, okay. You know, I'm there. Yes. Right. So it's, it's funny that for way sure. how that is. So, and back to your point around the room, what's, and I can't stress this enough with listeners is that you don't want to be the smartest person in any room that you go to. And as a matter of fact, when you walk into a room, it's okay if you feel a little out of your league and a little dumb. And I know that so many new RAIN members feel in going, holy cow, all these people got all this real estate and they know so much and da-da-da, and they are very intimidated by it. I, I can't stress enough. You got to embrace that. If you're the smartest person in the room, you got to ask, what the hell am I doing in this room? You know, where, yeah. what is, why am I doing this? And Interesting about all of that whole conversation about the community of rain and that you brought it up about the answers is that I don't have all the answers. Don Campbell doesn't have the answers. The people we put on the stage, we don't have all the answers, but I'll tell you what, when you look at the collective intelligence, and I use that phrase a lot, the collective intelligence, the collective experience of the rain community, it is mind blowing what some people have accomplished, the depth and the understanding of real estate, there's so much learning. So I actually, when I go into a deal now, I don't even really, <laughs> gosh, I don't worry about it because I know if I've got any questions, I'll find an answer. It's there, yep. easily accessible. All I got to do is say hi to a couple people and they go, I don't know it, but he knows it. It's just a link, 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 or she knows it. And uh, so it's really important, I think. So thanks for bringing that up because... You know, there is certainly groups out there of individual, like individual guys that, you know, know it all and come with me, I'll show you the way and all the rest of it. And I go, that's cool. Good for him. Good for them. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, man, you just can't. And I think that's why Rain's been around 26 years, to be honest with you. It's just. Yes, it stood the test of time. Yep. I'll share a little story. You heard the story about Henry Ford yes. when, uh, you know, like he he's the guy who made the car, but he didn't know all of the things that had to go in the car. Right. And, you know, he had people that he could call. Yes. So it's really just the power, the power of your network, the power of your mastermind is in the collective knowledge. So you call it intelligence. I'm totally with you. So yeah, get in that room and ask your questions. Because uh, I always say that every master was once a disaster. And, <laughs> you know, like, I love that. Yeah. And I remember going in that room thinking, oh my goodness gracious, like, watching people up on stage or, um, back at the time we used to do those, uh, I forget what we called it, but you know, when people used to line up and kind of talk about their joint venture deals. Yeah. 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 Right? yeah, and yeah, yeah. I remember seeing people saying, Oh, I got this, you know, I got three townhouses available and this, and I was like, how are they doing all this stuff? So yes, totally. But the best time is at the beginning. Uh, beginning is when you can really, uh, soak up, you can soak up so much. So yeah, you have to get in the room. It'll reduce your learning time. It'll reduce your risk. And it's only sensible. And it really, at the end of the day, it optimizes your time. Because if you're trying to do everything yourself and learn everything yourself, it's going to take you a lot longer. And why, again, our, our most valuable resource is not money. It is our time. And how you use that 24 hours uh, is what ultimately will bring you the results or, or not. And uh, I encourage people, you utilize, optimize your time really well when it comes to this stuff.
you can shortcut a lot of things. The journey that you've been on has got you to where you are today. And I want to just talk a little bit. What is your business model today? What do you what are you really kind of pushing or what have you got going on and what's going on today? Sure. So basically, you know, in Oakville here, when I did switch focus back then, I was doing I was making my purchases again, a very simplified, focused way, uh, a small area of South Oakville you know, 60 by 120 lots with 1,200 square foot bungalows sitting on. And I was going to rent them for the long term. We'd buy them. We'd do some lipstick and rouge. And I remember doing the research. The scorecard out of 20, Oakville scored back then when I did the grading, about 16. So I was like, man, oh man, this is crazy. Like, this is going to go really well. And in that time, it has gone really well. Things which were being bought, you know, mid-300s, low 400s are now, and this is way after the foreign buyers tax and everything, like 850, 900. And I still see a, a great future for them. But the thing is, is that I wanted to take some money off the table and use that to create incomes. It's what we talked about, right? Even though all of the properties positive cash flow, none of them would be able to support me, but there's lots of equity sitting in them. So I actually wanted to pull some equity off the table and I've developed, you know, other invest, the skill of investing your money, I think is one of the most important skills people can develop. I've never had a financial planner. I've never given anyone else a dollar of my money to manage, advise. Uh, I've never believed in any of that stuff. So I've always worked on my skills of how to create income if you need it, how to create wealth if you need it. Uh, as long as you have a suitable time frame, I think all of that stuff is accomplished. So today, when it comes to real estate, I'm not necessarily looking at uh, buying lots. I'm looking at uh, lending. I do, I do some private lending, and I take that equity. It's still in real estate. It's still something I understand in a in a great way. So I, I, I do lending, and when it comes to my next purchases, you know, GTA area, the condo market has been super hot. You know, I have a couple of whatever pre-sale purchases, condos which are under construction. Uh, but in, you know, I'm not looking at buying a lot right now at this stage of my life. I'm looking at taking some of the gains that real estate has provided me and uh, just shifting them into income-producing things. Because we talked about it earlier, it's great to have different streams of income. And if the equity is sitting in the walls of a house. And the refinancing rules get tougher and it's tougher to pull money out, then you might have to sell something and pull money out and then use that money intelligently. So that's more where I'm going. And I, I'm looking at much more that income track is instead of trading my time for money is how do I use accumulated wealth to create money? And that's much more what I focus on these days. You've done well over the years, but through your investing, your whole journey around business, around investing in real estate, you know, yes. stuff's gone on. And I want to talk about the challenge, the adversity you faced back in 2014. And I know that you've spoke of it from the stage and shared your story. And you had a bit of a, a, a period of time where things were pretty tough. Mm -hmm. and pretty heavy. Tell me a little bit about that story and share with our listeners that story, the adversity that you faced. And I want to, I want to dig into that a little bit because I think there's sure. so many great lessons in there. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, uh, 
basically got married 2004 to Elizabeth and three children born 2005, 2007, 2009. So let's just say that uh, it was it was busy, right? So you have that whole thing back then where uh, we talked about a little bit of 2007 and 8, investing in real estate, running my Williams Coffee Pub franchise, having three young kids at home. It was swamped. It was busy. And then you have the credit crisis hit, uh, the properties in Edmonton losing value, and my franchise business, quite frankly, within six months also, the income I was earning from it was cut down. So there was now financial stress on top of uh, just the just the normal everyday stresses you have when you have a young family. All the parents out there, I'm I'm almost certain can appreciate it if they have young kids. That what it's like and have three of them around at the same time. It's uh, it's it's rather challenging. So my wife, um, you know, she had a she was responsible for the whole what we'll just call that whole domestic kind of thing, right? The house the getting the kids to their doctor's appointments and ultimately when they started school, that whole thing. And I was much more outward facing in the whole, let's do business, let's build real estate. So uh, stressful, busy. Now, and up until that point, I'm going to take you to 2011. We had just come off of buying uh, three properties in Oakville in about a period of 30 days. There was a lot of stick handling. All three properties had needed extensions from August, September closings, joint venture money, arranging mortgage. Like I was, I was super busy. And there was an incident in 2011, right after, like two weeks after we bought those properties, where we went to visit a friend of mine who had built a brand new house in Oakville. The driveway was still undone. It was muddy. It was wet. She picked Ella, my wife, picked up one of my children and uh, ultimately wrenched her back, okay? So I'm giving you this context here because it, it, it'll, it'll tie together soon. She wrenched her back, and the next day she went to the doctor. And the doctor prescribed her some pain medications. They're called Oxycontins. And uh, again, given the background that I just described to you, I was busy kind of doing a lot of things outward, and she started taking these pills. Now, I don't know if you know anything about it, but again, looking back, it's uh, much easier to connect some dots. We went on a very, very tough patch for about three years. From 2011 to 2014, uh, those pills, unfortunately, became a, uh, an addiction. And as a husband and wife, there's things that you know, I, I didn't notice it. I didn't even notice it for the first, like literally first year. I had no clue that this was an issue, that this was a problem. So these, like, and again, people out there, you know, I, I, I value genuineness. So I, I'm sharing this because I know already in the audience that there's going to be people who are going to relate to this. And um, yeah, it, it, not a good experience, but she went through a super tough time, Patrick, where it became to the point where those those pills were all she could kind of uh, look forward to in her day. It's, you, you throw on top the three young kids um, managing stuff, then getting these painkillers in her system without, at the time, the knowledge of how addictive they really were. And now, if I'm not mistaken, I think they've been taken off the market in one way or another. So they were really bad. But they somehow got approved and they somehow got passed and the doctor gave it to her. And um, throw on top, just 
the loss of, if you know anyone who's kind of suffering from addictions, the loss of self-esteem that comes with that, that then led to, you know, depression. And now you have a real Molotov cocktail of stuff that you have these addictions going on to started with painkillers, some sleeping pills got added in there. Uh, and then you have depression of just self-esteem being kind of chiseled away at. Um, and now you have a husband who, when he did finally realize what was going on, uh, didn't have a lot of, like, there's no training for this, right? Like no one trains us. We didn't go to school about how to deal with these situations. Like I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, what'd the doctor say? Um, how come you don't have energy today? Uh, you got to take the kids here. You got, like, it was really stressful. So, uh, that obviously created problems in our relationship. So now you have these things happening to her. If you look at it in her eyes and her boots, that, uh, she has a lot of stuff going on and she's having a lot of trouble dealing with it. Family, again, her mom, her, her family, they didn't know what was going on. They were Polish. They had come to this country in the nineties as well. They, they didn't know. And I didn't know. So I was just like, keep going to the doctor, keep going to the doctor. Now, see in 2014, after 10 years of marriage, it became unfortunately uh, too much for my wife. And she made a decision that uh, there definitely affects, it affects uh, lots and lots of people. And uh, she decided she didn't want to be here anymore. And uh, she took her life. So when this happens, the suddenness of it, the devastation of it, ultimately, you know, it's one of those things where you got to, it's tough. So you have a tough situation as a parent, as a father here, and of course, as a spouse. So you're mourning and you're trying to keep it all together. And that really was um, a situation where it's like, you know, uh, I wouldn't wish it upon anyone in the world. And that has certainly been the biggest tragedy in terms of my life, the biggest challenge that I've faced. And uh, yeah, so I don't know where you really want to go with that. But I, I talk about it because I value genuineness. And if maybe people can help someone in their family or someone that's close to them deal with some, some of this stuff, then then me talking about it here today is worth it. And uh, you know that that's why I do disclose it is because people need it. They need to be supportive out there. It's the biggest regret of my life. The biggest regret of my life was I was unable to whatever you want to call it, help my wife deal with that, help my wife manage that, uh, wasn't supportive in the way I should have been because I just, I didn't know how to be. So I'm really hoping that sharing that will spur people in the audience who are either dealing with it themselves to talk about it, or if they know someone close to them to talk about it. So, you know, thanks for sharing the story. I mean, there's a couple of things around it and, and this actually all links back to real estate because I do know some of the story. In, yes, you know, yes. in, in my world, I actually had a family member who was addicted to Oxycontin as well and mm -hmm. then went to Percocet and for many years, and that was an issue. So the question I, I guess I have for you, if we can dig into it a little bit, because I just think it's an important conversation. As a husband and you re reflect, your, you know, your wife took her own life. You've been through, and I'm sure, I, d I don't know this to be true, but I'm I'm assuming that there's an uh, there's mourning that still goes on even three four years later, and Easily. 
how did you yourself deal with it? You know, where, cause you look back, you're reflecting, I'm sure you're blaming yourself. I should have done this or I could have done that. And why didn't I listen more? So if you were in the world of, I don't know, couple counseling, if you were just doing that, <laughs> you know, given your experience and I mean, gosh, this went down the darkest possible path that could go, mm-hmm. you know, in, in reflection, in hindsight, what would be some guidance that you gave to people even around relationship? Yes. So, uh, certainly for, I, I I'm going to talk a little bit more to the husbands in the audience sure. here. Okay. So first of all, when your wife, uh, gives birth, okay. It's the young child, that whole thing. They, especially if it's their first time, really, please watch, watch them and be supportive. So that's the first piece of advice is that it, it's watch your wife, you know, in that, that first year, two years, make sure she's getting enough sleep, make sure that she's eating as well as she possibly can. Now, the actual relationship side of things, I think every relationship is always, it it comes down to uh, the communication and being able to, being able to, even if you don't know, like I didn't know, it is how can you source the necessary help for the person that you're, you're caring for. So, Maybe I had to reach out to psychologists. Maybe I had to dig more with my family doctor when it comes to situations around mental health or addictions and such. So again, I I just didn't know to do it enough. So I already know that most people out there are not equipped either to deal with a situation like this. But now there's so many more resources. There's so much information available. Uh, Stop being, and and the biggest piece of advice is, Stop being like shameful to talk about it. When you talk about it is when you can ultimately help somebody. If you choose to sweep it under the rug, uh, keep it in the closet that someone is having mental health issues, then you're actually, uh, I'm sorry to say, but you're enabling it because then you're not, you're not part of the solution. You're just part of the problem because you have, she had a lot of those issues where to the outside world, she thought that they were thinking bad of her because she couldn't, you know, she couldn't do certain things or she didn't have energy, et cetera. And I'm just like, you know, at the end of the day, it's you, it's you and your spouse and you and your family. And you guys have to make it good for you guys. Don't worry about what everyone else thinks. Very People are too busy to be worried about what you got going on. They have their own things going on. Mm -hmm. So stop being shameful about it and talk it through, bring in their family members, get support, and that's really the best answer I can give because I, I certainly, you know, I, I'm certainly no expert at it. But yes, reflecting back, if I say, here's the things I wish I could have done, it probably would have been uh, that list. So you're there, your mm-hmm. wife is gone, you're going through the devastation of losing your spouse. Mm-hmm. You now have three children mm-hmm. on your own. Now, yep. I don't want to make any assumptions where, where, do you, where your, do you have, do you have siblings? Do you have, uh, other family that, and I'm sure your mom and your dad stepped up as well to support you. Yes. Super, super, super grateful. Super, super, super fortunate that, uh, first of all, my parents, they live about, I don't know, 10 to 15 minutes away, both retired. So my mother certainly kind of helped out very, very much. And Elizabeth's mother, they lived literally two streets away. Because when we got married, 
they followed us to Oakville in, in terms of separate house or et cetera. Uh, but so I had, uh, again, I, I don't know how I would have dealt with it if they weren't around, but I had all four grandparents uh, around relatively close by to help me deal with it. But literally, Patrick, like when I say a switch of life, like a not a culture shock, but things as simple as, you know what, like uh, play dates, all right, kids play dates, a simple example. My wife was kind of in charge of all that stuff. She would figure out who's going where, whose house they're at, all of that. And she would deal, you know, deal with it via text message. Well, all of a sudden, that simple thing became my responsibility. All of the parents then started reaching out to me. Um, what's the cycle of getting the laundry done in the house? Like all of these things, which I had zero real exposure to. I, again, I was outward focusing, right? I was the business and real estate, and she was more the inside the home. And we were—I thought we were a very, very good team, especially early on. Uh, all of those things then all of a sudden kind of became my domain. So adjusting to all of that, I needed time. And at that time, I was doing the mobile marketing agency and I shut it down. I basically had clients. I had like a national franchise client. I had several local restaurants as clients. I couldn't do that anymore. I had to be able to just uh, mourn, A, and then get adjusted with my children. So yes, we had a lot of family help. But at the end of the day, I was the one who decided, well, this is like now my full-time, this is now going to be my full-time thing for a while. I have to take it easy. I can't really focus on any clients or anyone else's issues and anyone else's problems. I just need to deal with my three young children, helping them adjust and moving forward. And we're going to tie it back to real estate. Real estate is what ultimately uh, let me do that. Because you had to make a decision, you know, you had to go, hold it. I got to shut down here and be focused. You had to get inward focused. You had to get inside your home. You had to get inside your heart, your head. You had to get mm -hmm. in, you know, you got to get, you had to connect with your children. So you had to shut it down. So that's where real estate really came into play for you and was probably, uh, you know, that was a really significant payoff for you in terms of, holy cow, I've got real estate. Tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. how you use that to get you where, you know, get you through that time. Yeah. Basically, like, let's tie it back to our acres. When we, or sorry, when we go to Acre and we're led through the exercise of Belize and creating our Belize, on my Belize back then, obviously, there was a number attached and there was a certain number of properties and pictures of vacations, et cetera, and all that. There was nowhere, oh, I'm going to need real estate in case my wife passes away. But that's exactly what happened. So I had, again, we were in a position where the purchases we were making back in 2009, 10, and 11 uh, in the GTA market and Oakville specifically, and in my area specifically, my area, when I say 16 check marks out of 20, the one powerful thing was gentrification. There was these bungalows were all being torn down and 3,000, 3,500 square foot homes are being put up. So let's just say that our equity appreciation was substantial. And when this happened with my wife and I had to shut it all down, then you realize that there's no income and there's just inward focusing kind of like the cat curling up in the corner and just kind of licking its wounds. That's what the stage was. I was able to refinance the property, take that big chunk of money and just put it in my bank account. And I didn't have to look at it again for like almost two years 
uh, and just, I was able to do what I needed to do inwardly focus. If I didn't have real estate, then I don't know what I would have done. People ask me like, what would you have done if you didn't have real estate? I, I have no clue. Like something else would have had to be figured out, but then real estate gave me that backup. It gave me that security. And again, I never planned for it that way. That's just ultimately what happened, right? That's when life got in the way of real estate. You have to make your turn. You have to make your adjustment. And if I didn't make those steps, if I didn't fall flat on my face in Edmonton, if I wasn't t- tapping into the kind of the networking and the community of Rain and getting that support and then ultimately switching focus to Oakville, I wouldn't have had any of that, right? So to me, I owe everything. Uh, to real estate investing, it's certainly the most successful thing that I've ever done out of all the business things that I've, I've looked at. And at the at the core of that is is Rain, Dawn, yourself. I mean, like that. It's really, really important. So real estate gave me that. And I, I'm going to ask people in the audience, like, you know, what would happen if something like that happened to you? What would you be? What would you be doing? How would you manage? Like, if you have a job, would you be going to work the following Monday? Or two weeks later, or something like. How would it all work for you? So, I encourage people to, uh, you know, secure their financial future and get out there and, and take the action because it's better than sitting around. And um, that's what it provided me. So that's where real estate. Yeah, I owe it everything. I'm so glad you shared that story. You know, uh, early on in my podcast, gosh, must have been a year ago. I interviewed uh, Jane Blofus, who's a best-selling author, and she wrote the book with the stroke of a pen. But mm-hmm. her husband was killed in a uh, plane crash, in a small plane he was the pilot of. And as if that wasn't devastating enough, he was traveling with, I think, two members of other families, uh, fathers mm-hmm. or whatever it was. And the insurance company actually then filed a lawsuit against Jane. So not only was she dealing with the loss of her husband and two close friends, by the way, she was then yep. dealing with all of the things that she had to deal with in terms of lawsuits and all the rest of it and being prepared for that in real estate allows us to have some financial preparedness around that. So it's, it's really interesting. And, and, and for me being in the position I'm at with rain, Don would share the same thing as some of the other team would, I wouldn't say hundreds, but certainly many, many dozens of stories over the years of people that have had some, tragedy in their life and it could be significant you know it could be job losses at a just a bad age you know it could be any number of things illness cancers long-term disabilities and the stories after stories aside from them being you know quite heart-wrenching is the good news around it was if i didn't have real estate i don't know what i would have done Mm -hmm. because you got an accounting background and when we talk about financial preparedness, when Rain released the Rain Vest binder, that Rain Vest questionnaire of being financially prepared, when you look mm-hmm. back now and and look at where you and your wife were, you know you had real estate, but beyond that, as a couple, w- did you have a will? Did you were you prepared that way? Did you, were you pretty clear around yes. that as a couple? I had never had a will. Uh, the day after my son was born is the first day I called my real estate lawyer and said, Peter, need to get a will. So in terms of a will, yes, we were prepared. 
And I was the uh, executor of her estate. So let me just say that I wish that there was something like a, a rain vest binder back then. Right. Okay. Even three, four years ago, right? Like, uh, it's messy. So that rain vest binder for the rain members who've received it, uh, I have kind of got about halfway through it and I encourage people just get that one done, especially when you're doing your sophisticated investment binder. There's a lot of stuff, which is going to go kind of back and forth in two places. So uh, yes, I, I didn't have it back then. And that on top of dealing with the the morning and her passing, now I have to deal with all that crap, but I was prepared in terms of a will. And if I didn't have a will, then yeah, there might've been some, there's definitely would have been higher taxes, probate taxes and such to pay, but, uh, there was a lot of simplicity that came from it. So yeah, I was prepared with a will and a secondary will back then day after her son was born. So you spent a couple of years stepping back and during that time, I think you used a great metaphor of the cat, you know, licking its wounds and just healing and resting. And, mm-hmm. and in, in the, during that time, were you able to, it was pretty dark. I'm assuming back then I can only imagine how dark it was. When, mm-hmm. when did you start to see some light? When did you kind of come out of the funk or the mourning uh, process, sure. if you will? You know what, in terms of a, uh, of a timeline, I think it was roughly about, a year later where I was finally able to kind of just uh, talk about it a little bit or also up until then that, that first year, uh, Patrick, like, cause again, you know, every day your life is carrying on. And of course, everywhere you go locally, there's a reminder, right? You're triggered of a reminder. Oh yeah. Ella and I were here. We did this. And oh yeah, we visited here. Like every day driving to school or, there are just so many things. So the first year, yeah, you're just internally dealing with everything. And let's just say that because of that whole experience and the lead up to it, that 2011 to 2014 timeframe, I was also going through, because when your relationship isn't going well, I call it inner chaos equals outer chaos. So I wasn't looking after myself. I wasn't looking after my health in that time period as well. And in the first year after her passing, I still wasn't. But after that first year, 2015, then I started looking inward and saying, okay, you know what? At the end of the day, Jay, things got to move on. And the best way for you to look after your kids is look after yourself. So then I started focusing much more on my health, which even though it is a top five value along with genuineness for me, um, let's just say that there was conflicts in those areas before, right? Like you're not eating the best or you you don't work out. So starting to be able to take care of myself uh, health-wise, not just physically working out, but mentally reflecting and uh, meditating. I, had, I, hadn't, I have implemented meditation in my life in a pretty big way now. Uh, that inner chaos started kind of relieving itself. It was, okay, I, I'm fixing myself on the inside mentally. And then that led to me kind of looking better or feeling better or my skin being better, except well, all these little things. So um, it, it took a year, but then ever since then, the focus has changed. And again, I've had that time. I've had that ability. Like you would, you would be amazed um, of how much just time I spend kind of by myself at home, just like a, a lot of, a lot of free time, a lot of scheduled things, which I want to do. So uh, looking after yourself, is kind of the best way I know that you can get out of that whole thing. 
And I do remember one very specific thing that woke me up a little bit. And it was actually the day that Don's dad passed away. Up until then, I had been a little, I had been quite a bit out of touch with Rain, with yourself, with Don. And then I saw that post on Facebook and it's like, it just kind of started all over again for me. I was like, oh man, Don must be going through a really, really tough time right now. And uh, that's when I kind of reached out after a few years of being out of the scene and out of the loop. I was just like, okay, I, I, I got to help. I got to help Don. Don kind of, you know, to this day, I consider him a, a life mentor, not just a real estate mentor, but he had kind of given me so much that I was like, oh man, I, I have to reach out here. So that's what I, I ultimately did do. And I sent him a, I don't even remember where I got it. Someone had sent it to me. I think it was this little, the thing about waves. When someone first passes away, the waves seem like they're a hundred feet and the water's uncontrollable and you're just kind of lost at sea and you're being pushed whatever way. But then over time, those waves dissipate a bit, you know, then they're 80 feet and they're 60 feet and they're not as strong. And over time, like it, it gets, it gets easier. So when I look at that type of a situation and looking back at it, reaching out to Don and then having him acknowledge that it was helping him in some way. then I was like, yeah, I, I have to talk about this. I have to talk about the story so that this way it can reach people. And that's how you can kind of impact people. So I went a little bit off, off there, but I thought that that's really important to kind of say that uh, there's people out there who are able to help you, willing to help, but you got to reach out a little bit. And, you know, that's, that, that's where it comes from. You know, in the context of the show, Jay, there is no going off. Ultimately, you see, <laughs> ultimately seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. You know, at the end of the day, life happens. And how we <laughs> deal with life happening, and we all have to deal with it, and we go through the process that we go through, and not everybody would come out like you did. So there's mm -hmm. lots of learning there and that there is adversity and that you do have to really dig deep to bring it up. And, mm -hmm. you know, in this case, at least financially, real estate played a big role. The community of rain at some level then got you regrounded in it. And, and that's kind of, that's a very, I think that's just a really great story. It's also a statement of character of you once again. And I think that's, uh, there's lots to be, uh, lots of lessons to learn in all of that. Now you talk about looking after yourself and and how you've had to shift that mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Um, yes. Tell me a little bit about your routine in the morning. What you what what or afternoon? What's your routine? How do you how is it that you look after yourself? Because ultimately, it doesn't matter who I talk to. The most successful people I know have mm -hmm. some way. And when I talk about success, I'm not just talking about financial success. By the way. Mm -hmm. They uh, they have routine. They have a, a protocol that they are a little bit selfish in that moment, realizing that being selfish is being selfless. Uh, you know, yes. put on your uh, put on your uh, oxygen mask first, kind of thing. So, what do you do mm -hmm. to look after yourself? What kind of routine do you have, Jay? Sure. Uh, basically, definitely have a morning routine. I'll cut it up into two. It depends if I'm what I call in project mode. If I'm in project mode, then I actually wake up super early. It's like, uh, well, for me, super early is six. I know that might not be super early for other folks. And that first hour is project-based, whatever it is that I'm working on. If I am working on a project, it's early. Otherwise it's seven usually. 
And the routine is very, very uh, simple and easy to repeat. So seven o'clock, wake up, make my bed. Takes me like 15 seconds. There's my first accomplishment for the day. Then it always involves uh, meditation and listening to something or watching something that I like. And it's just for me. It might be a comedy thing. It might just be reading up on reading the sports page. I'm a big sports guy. So it's just me, no email, no outside world. So that, that's a good 15 minutes. Then I meditate about another 15 minutes. And usually there is a, uh, you know, drop off. I drop off my kids every day to school still. That's something that even though I don't have to do that, that's something that they feel they just like it. And it keeps me connected with them. So I always make time for that in my day to drop them off. And then when I come back, now it is, uh, I'm not a big eater. I know people are a big breakfast people. I am not. I actually am much more of the 12 to 8. I'll uh, load up. And I, I think people call it intermittent fasting. I don't quite use that term because once in a while I get hungry and I'll eat something later on. But I, I do the 12 to 8 load up a, a bunch of stuff. And that way in the morning, I'm a, I'm a tea guy and a vitamin guy. Uh, but other than that, and, and my food is actually, that's the biggest difference now. It is not so much in routines. It is in my diet. I am a big, let's just say veggie salad guy. And this is a guy who probably for the first 35 years of life, I disliked salad so much that uh, I rarely ate it, if ever ate it. Now, uh, most of my meals are big salads with some sort of protein on it. I have lost the luster of using food for enjoyment. I I'm a type 2 diabetic, so I don't know a lot of people know that. So for me, controlling my blood sugar and re you know, reducing the, the amount of sugar I eat and white car uh, refined flour and carbs... I uh, limit that a lot. And yeah, the exercise usually comes in in the afternoons because uh, I don't like to waste the, the, the morning time with that because my exercise, you know, 30-minute uh, routines, pretty good. Some stretching, a little bit of the light calisthenics and a good 15 to 20 minutes on the bike. That's, that's plenty for me. And then I get enough activity driving my kids around and doing things with them. So Health-wise, yeah, I, I would encourage people, and I, I find that as well, that every successful person I know has a routine. And I use it, the best example, I don't remember who told me, it was a NASA, you know, a NASA launch, like a rocket launch. Well, I've read a stat where the first 15 to 20% of the launch sequence, if that goes right, then the last 80 to 80 or 75 to 80% of the launch will go really well. So if you start your day off and get that first, you know, 15, 20% of it good, you know, write down, oh, uh, I forgot the whole thing of journaling. I usually write down my uh, list of three, three things that I want to get done that day. And I usually leave it at three. I don't write down big, heavy to-do lists. I don't see the point of that because then you just feel bad when you don't get everything done. So I do have a weekly list and off of the weekly list every day, I'm like, what are my three things that I got to get done today? So that's all part of a morning routine. It takes about an hour ish. Um, and then, uh, yeah, then I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing. It might just be more free time or I'll do reading. Uh, I have turned into a little bit more of a podcast fan now. So, uh, listening, but, uh, a lot of learning that that's a pretty regular part of my routine. Cause then I feel like I'm growing and, and I can do better 
and I am developing my skills better. So uh, it's a lot of me time. And that is something that is a big deal. So you're tall. You're six foot five? Six five. Six five. Yeah. yeah. You're tall. Yeah. You're a slim guy. How old are you now? I am 46, Four- 1971. So yeah. I'll be 47 December of this year. Awesome. Young man. How old are your children now? So eight, 11, and 12. You know, so they are, you know, let me tie back again to my wife's passing. Part of the other mental thing was, is getting over her passing was also realizing that, okay, wait a second. At the end of the day, instead of what I've lost, let me think about what I still have and what am I grateful for? And that was a really big mental adjustment. It helped me a lot move forward, what I'll call is because then I realized, okay, you know what? Yes, she's not here anymore, but her legacy is basically going to be what I end up doing with these three children. So everything that I kind of look towards and do, it's, it's really focused on them. Any decisions I make, it is, it, it's all about these three. So I can still give her a great legacy if I do a good job with them. And I teach them the lesson, and it's something that uh, they had to see at an early age in life. Unfortunately, it's like good things happen in life, bad things happen in life. The only thing you can, can, can do is, is control how you react to it. And they learn that lesson at a very early age. So these are things which I take very super important. And I, I realize then if I can help her with that, then yeah, then her life is not in vain because those three can contribute to the world in a really big way as well. And that's kind of what I, that's what's important to me these days. I think Jay, with what you've gone through and and how you're dealing with it, how you're learning to deal with it, you know, you'll certainly be Mm -hmm. a a great guide for your, for your children. And gosh, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't even imagine what they went through as young as they were. They still have an understanding is mom's gone. So Gosh, you know, don't wish that on anybody. Uh, but I do sincerely appreciate you sharing the story and the relevance to the whole conversation around real estate, what it meant to you, and mm-hmm. how you were able to leverage it, and also the importance of financial preparedness. It's top of mind for for myself, my team, and we talk about it a lot. How do we how do we actually inspire people to understand? Because you've been through it, right? You know, so yep. you can go do something like, you know, get on it, you know, but it's, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, get people to take that message. So I appreciate the time that we've spent today and, and it's, gosh, this could almost go to a part two because I haven't even touched on some of the things I'd like to touch on. But as we wind the show down, uh, Jay, well, let's have some fun. This has been a pretty heavy conversation, although very, very meaningful. It's, uh, mm-hmm. so I like my rapid sure, fire. Sure. It's like, uh, we wrap it up. The listeners often <laughs> ask me to sh- change some mm-hmm. questions, which I occasionally do, but rapid fire okay. questions. We're going to go through it. You ready? Go for it. No trick questions here. All right. Okay. What mm-hmm. book was the most impactful for you or that you would gift? Think and Grow Rich. That's a popular one. Oh, it's, it's the granddaddy of them all. It was yeah. one of the first books I read back in 2005. Yeah. What's your favorite swear word? F word by far. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Whatever you do or dream, dream to do, begin it because boldness has genius, magic, and power in it. Awesome. You tried accounting, you tried the restaurant business, you're into real estate. <laughs> If you weren't mm-hmm. doing any of that, what profession would you do other than what you're working on right now? 
I don't have an answer. You know what? It's when I was the kid, it was a police officer, fireman, like a lot of little guys, I think. So maybe one of those. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? Uh, you made your children proud. On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? How weird am I? <laughs> I don't know. Some people would probably think I'm super weird. Others would think, oh, he's a pretty normal dude. So I don't, I'll give myself a nine because I'm, I'm pretty different than uh, most of the people that that uh, I may meet. So let's say a nine. What are you just not really good at? Oh, that's easy. It's uh, anything to do with tools, lawn mowing, snow shoveling, any of that stuff. I two left hands, man. Don't even don't even bother touching it. I have people to do all that stuff. I don't do any of that. Good for you. Room, desk, or car? What do you clean first? Room, desk, or car? Oh, uh, desk. Desk is where I create, so that's desk is where it's at. Often, I'm talking when I interview. You know, on the podcast, there's guys that are OCD about certain things. They're OCD about their car. It's always spotless, but their desk looked like a grenade went off or vice versa or their room. So do you have any OCD tendencies in any areas of your life? None. I am okay. My mom does. <laughs> so we, that's another creative tension uh, when something's messy. With three young kids, Patrick, if I was OCD about messiness, or, oh, geez, then I'm uh, really hurting myself, I think. So no, absolutely not. Uh, I, I accept things for as they are. I try and major in major things. You know what I mean? Yeah, Not yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So. You know, I think parents. You know, as a as a as a grandfather now to two yes. grandchildren, I I watch my daughter and her husband and look at the house and you know I go, I could never do that again. No. no. <laughs> so good for you. Do you have a favorite tune? Tune. Not actually much of a music guy. I uh, listen to Baroque classical music when I'm doing work, but uh, no. My kids obviously keep me informed with whips and nays and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, so yeah, yeah I kind of have an idea, but nothing favorite-wise, no. You know, I'm a Baroque guy. I went through Les Hewitt's uh, program as well many, many years mm -hmm. ago. And, you know, Baroque to study and Baroque to write, awesome. Mm -hmm. Love it, love yes. it, love it. How about a favorite movie? Gosh, three kids, you got to have a favorite movie along the way. Oh, man. Well, see, the thing is, is that I don't get to go, when we go to the movies, I don't get to go watch what I want. I have to watch <laughs> what they want. So uh, I'm I'm of the ilk, you know, like A Few Good Men, Silence of yeah. the Lambs, like to go some way back, play back kind of thing. So yeah. I like the action-ish kind of movies, yeah. What are you grateful for? Oh, easy, easy. The children and the family around me and the knowledge that I'm able to build the ability to learn is what I should say. That is a wrap for our podcast today, Jay. I'm grateful for awesome. you as a guest. I'm grateful to know you. I'm grateful to uh, have heard your story and uh, have played whatever small part I might have played in supporting you on your journey and your education. And thank you so much for your time, your energy, your honesty in sharing the story and, and sharing your journey as uh, a real estate investor, as a seemingly ordinary guy that's uh, achieved some pretty extraordinary results. So thank you very mm -hmm. much, Jay. I appreciate it. And just so we do tie into you, the whole, the philosophy of the simple significantly impacting many people's lives every day. That is from you, my friend. So <laughs> I believe that one. And that is, uh, yeah, I learned that one from you. So when I, when I do a podcast or when I'm doing anything, a talk, that's what I want to do is that I want to reach people I want to impact them. It doesn't have to be that I'm 
selling them or anything. It's just, how can I impact? So that is 100% you. Thanks very much for uh, a great conversation. Thanks, Jay. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.